From the dawn of time we came, moving silently down through the centuries, living many secret lives, struggling to reach the time of the gathering, when the few who remain will battle to the last. No one has ever known we were among you. Until now. Greetings, Trex fans. As you may have guessed, I'm not Rico. He's actually on special assignment somewhere for the government, or something like that. My name's Al Kessel. I'm Quadshot from the Trex forums, and I'm one of the hosts of Tales from the Mouse House, a podcast dedicated to the Disneyland Resort. Okay, sorry. I had to do the shameless plug. My wife made me do it. She's the other host of Tales. In this episode of Trex and Sci-Fi... I'm going to try to tackle the strangely popular Highlander franchise. Well, the movies and the TV series, anyway. There is actually a series of novels, an animated series, a video game, yes, you heard me right, a video game, a few spin-off TV series, and a huge line of merchandise. But I'm not going to cover these in this show. I'll concentrate on the movies and the live-action TV series that starred Adrian Paul as Duncan MacLeod. Now, at least for me, the original movie and the TV series were the best aspects of this entire franchise. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, the movie Endgame wasn't too bad, but Highlander 2, and I mean the first time it was released at the theater, Highlander 3, and the made-for-sci-fi TV movie Highlander the Source were true stinkers. Just an example of Hollywood trying to recreate lightning. Now, that being said, I'll briefly cover the other four movies, but I'm going to concentrate on the first movie and the TV series, since they, at least to me, exemplified the franchise at its best. So, for those of you who have been trapped on an island with some weird electromagnetic properties for the last six years, Highlander was a 1986 fantasy movie starring Christopher Lambert as a Scottish immortal and Sean Connery, a real-life Scot, as Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, an Egyptian who served as the chief metallurgist to the King of Spain. Now these and other immortals are involved in a serious game where others like them are drawn to one another, duel with swords in an attempt to remove the other's head. The end result of this duel awards the victor with the life energy from the loser in a special effects laden sequence known as the Quickening. The ultimate goal of the game is to be the last immortal standing and win the prize, big P little r. The prize, as we find out at the end, and warning, spoiler ahead, is the spiritual ability to know everything, which, as you can well imagine, can be quite the weapon in the wrong hands. As the movie opens, we meet Russell Nash. While attending a professional wrestling match, Nash feels the presence of another immortal. You see, the creator of the story added a pretty neat little way to keep immortals from sneaking up on one another. All immortals, once they become immortal, can sense the presence of others like them once they're within a certain range. Anyway, Nash follows Iman Fazil into the parking garage, and the first sword fight of the franchise ensues. Of course, Nash wins and takes Fazil's life force in an amazing display of special effects. Well, at least for 1986. 
As Nash attempts to run from the scene, he's arrested by New York's finest, and he meets forensic expert Brenda Wyatt, who works for the NYPD and is just coincidentally fascinated by ancient swords. And this is where the first flashback of the franchise begins. Although flashbacks have been used for many years prior to Highlander, this movie uses them really, really well to relate the backstory of McCloud. In fact, the flashback became a huge storytelling device in the television series. Through these flashbacks, we discover that Russell Nash is in fact a young man named Carr McLeod, born in the Highlands of Scotland, in the village of Glenfinnan, on the shores of Loch Shiel in 1518. During his first clan war battle in 1536, McLeod is stabbed clean through by the Kurgan, an evil, savage immortal. Before the Kurgan gets a chance to finish off McLeod and take his head, he's hauled away by Connor's clansmen. After McLeod dies back in his village and then is reborn, he's labeled a witch and banished from his home. So, I'm not a math whiz by any stretch of the imagination, but this makes Connor 18. Really? We're supposed to believe that Christopher Lambert is 18 years old? Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're supposed to believe he's actually Scottish, too. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, Connor wanders around for a few years in good cinematic fashion until he meets Heather MacDonald, the daughter of a blacksmith. They fall in love, Connor learns the family business, and they get married. After a few more years of frolicking and general merriment, the whole thing changes. Greetings. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. And I'm at your service. Q. Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, better known as Sean Connery or Bond, James Bond. Now, why they chose a Frenchman to play a Scot and a Scot to play an Egyptian, who knows? But they did. Anyway, Ramirez becomes McLeod's mentor and teaches him all he can about the game, how to fight and defend himself, how to defeat other immortals by removing their heads from their bodies, and the importance of blending in with the crowd in order to survive. Ramirez explains to McLeod the overpowering sensation of the quickening that the immortal victor in any encounter experiences once they've beheaded their opponent and taken their life force. The quickening is actually the process of transferring that life force. He also explains to McLeod what becomes the main theme of the entire franchise, that good must always triumph over evil, and he also explains the now very famous concept that, in the end, there can be only one. Juan also informs McLeod that immortals can't have children. So how are there immortals running around, you might ask? Well, that's one of the mysteries of the franchise. Ramirez tells McLeod that there are very evil immortals out there in the world, and should they win the prize, well, let's just say mankind will have a lot more to worry about than another season of heroes. Ramirez trains McLeod in the ways of the game, and eventually the Kurgan catches up with them. Seems that Ramirez has a bit of a history with the giant super-evil immortal, too. And of course, McLeod is off at the market somewhere shopping for a new hair tie or something. So, Ramirez in the Kurgan battle, and in true Hollywood fashion, the bad guy wins, chops off Mr. Bond's head, and absorbs all of his life force power. Decades then pass, Heather gets old and dies, and Connor begins his exploration of the world, with Ramirez's dragon head katana, a totally kick-butt Japanese sword, at his side. Now, back in the main storyline, Brenda Wyatt pursues Connor, and they eventually fall in love with one another. You see, at this time in the story, McLeod and all the remaining immortals begin to feel a pull to a distant and mysterious far-off land, 
called New York, to participate in the gathering. These are the final battles, kind of like the semifinals in the NBA. Once there's only two left standing, they'll duke it out until only one remains to collect the prize, because remember earlier, there can be only one. Guess who that is? Yep, Connor McLeod from the Clan McLeod. After another very impressive, quickening special effects sequence, okay, again, impressive for 1986, he and Brenda jet off to Scotland where he describes to Brenda what the prize actually is. It's like a whirlwind in my head, but if I concentrate, I know what people are thinking all over the world. Presidents, diplomats, scientists, I can help them understand each other. Now, of course, uh, we can understand why a power like this would be very bad in evil hands. Another side effect to the prize is that it strips the winner of their immortality, and now they can have children. Fade to black, cue really cool music by Queen. Highlander also starred a relatively unknown Clancy Brown as the Kurgan, who, in my opinion, almost steals the movie with his insane portrayal of an ageless evil immortal. Uh, and it also starred Roxanne Hart as Brenda Wyatt. Based on the original story by Gregory Wyden, who also wrote the screenplay for the movie Backdraft, which, by the way, was based for the most part on his actual experiences as a firefighter, and it was directed by Australian director Russell Mulcahy, who at the time made his career as a pop music video director. Some of the biggest music videos that he did included Video Killed the Radio Star for the Buggles, Hungry Like a Wolf for Duran Duran, and Turning Japanese for the Vapors. Mulcahy experienced quite a successful uh, music video career by the time producer William Panzer approached him about directing Highlander. Mulcahy also brought his music video style of fast cuts and racy music to the production, which gives the original Highlander movie some of its edge. Gregory Wyden's original draft of the movie was very different from the final movie version in many ways. The first draft of the script was much darker and it was very graphically violent. The main characters were also quite a bit different. In fact, Connor was born in 1408 instead of 1518, and he lived with his mother and father as opposed to just his mother. And in the first draft, Heather, Connor's beloved wife, doesn't even exist. Connor was promised to a young girl named Mara who he loved with all of his heart, but who later rejects him after he becomes immortal. There were other very major factors that were later changed during the rewrite, and things that, if they hadn't been changed, would have made for a much different movie. Initially, immortals could have children, and in fact, in the draft, Connor is said to have 37. In a flashback in the first draft, Connor attends the funeral of one of his sons. Also, there are no quickenings in the first draft. When an immortal kills another, nothing happens. And I think if they had left this part out, the TV series would have most likely never happened, or it would have been pretty boring since the quickening was the climax of just about every episode. In the first draft, there's no mention of the prize either. When Connor finally kills the Kurgan, he feels a sharp burning pain. 
That could have been just a gas bubble or something. Distributed by the successful 20th Century Fox Company, Highlander was released on March 7, 1986 in the U.S., and it was not well received, but was widely popular in Europe and other markets. Highlander really hit its mark, though, when it was released on home video, at which time it was catapulted to cult classic status, which is when I first came across the movie. The movie made a little over $2 million on its opening weekend and ended up making about $5.7 million domestically. Internationally, the movie made $12.8 million. Not really good considering it cost 20th Century Fox about $16 million to make. Now, although when it was released in theaters, Highlander didn't fare very well, but it must have struck a chord with viewers on some level. They made four sequels and a few TV series from it, but like I said, it was when it hit the home video market that it really began to take off, giving it that cult status that it now enjoys. I think the key to at least this first movie's success is the way they presented the subject to us. The entire premise of Highlander could have turned out to be another Plan 9 from Outer Space. Not that there was anything wrong with that movie, nudge nudge, wink wink. But with Wyden's well-written script and Mulcahy's unique directing style, Highlander appealed to a more unique type of fan. Those of us who were getting pretty bored with the comedy sci-fi hybrids like Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, you know, all three of them, and Flash Gordon, and also the straight linear storytelling of almost every other movie, we were captivated by the flashbacks that helped fill in the backstory of our main character. And the flashback technique, I might add, was also very successfully used in the series Lost. Although I enjoyed these movies, well, except for Flash Gordon, and I still watch them now, well, except for Flash Gordon, Highlander was a darker sort of movie with a hero that wasn't exactly a Mr. Clean. He was, for all intent and purpose, a serial killer. He ran around the world chopping off heads. Anyway, the story, the directing, and the amazing soundtrack by Queen pumped up some quickening fire into the genre. Highlander was first released in 1996 on DVD in a 10th anniversary edition uh, director's cut that contained several scenes that were deleted from the U.S. The, uh, theatrical version. And in 2002, a 15th anniversary edition was released that contains both the cut version and the uncut version. 500 years later, the hunt for the immortals begins again. Greetings, Highlander. You called? Highlander 2, the quickening that's has some fun. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Okay, so with the popularity Highlander enjoyed, someone thought it would be a great idea to release another Highlander movie that helps explain where immortals actually come from and what the game really is. Some ideas are just bad. Take example, blow-drying your hair in a bathtub. Well, Highlander 2 The Quickening is one of those bad ideas. Now don't get me wrong, I was all for a sequel, but this one was done poorly, and in fact, back on board was director Russell Mulcahy, but he reportedly hated the final product so much that he walked out of the film's world premiere after just 15 minutes. Christopher Lambert, reprising his role as Connor McCloud, threatened to walk out of the project as it neared the end of the filming because he felt the story was just not good, but he wound up finishing the project due to contract obligations. 
Now, Gregory Wyden, the writer of the original Highlander screenplay and creator of the entire Highlander universe, was originally approached to write the screenplay for the second installment, but they gave him such a tight, unrealistic deadline that he walked out, he quit. He felt that it was not nearly enough time to properly create a second Highlander movie. So the producers approached Peter Bellwood, who co-wrote the screenplay for the original Highlander movie with Gregory Wyden. Now, Peter Bellwood actually took it upon himself to rewrite the entire mythos of the Highlander universe, and that really, really didn't sit well with most fans. Peter Bellwood did not put out a quality product. The second Highlander movie was really, really lacking in any kind of uh, redeemable quality. Highlander 2 starts out in the year 2024. Pollution has run so out of control that the ozone has been destroyed to the point where a dome has to be built to shelter the people and keep them safe. Now, remember, this is 25 years after the events in the original Highlander, and if you recall, McLeod was stripped of his immortality, so he's looking pretty old. Now, according to this movie, uh, McLeod has become somewhat of a, a scientist. Because remember, he can read everybody's minds and he knows everything. So he had a, a huge hand in actually designing and building this dome that protected people. So life under the dome is exactly what you'd think it would be. Dirty, dingy, you know, your basic Stephen King survival scenario. Now the downside of the dome is that it plunges humanity into 24 hours of night. Cool if you like the nightlife, but not so cool for those who like their tans. But... Thanks to the dome, we're all still alive. But, and you knew there'd be another but in here somewhere, there's a renegade group of radicals that believe that the ozone has actually repaired itself and that there's no longer a need for this dome that, of course, keeps regular folks like you and me down and allows the rich and greedy to get richer and greedier. And it's not really hard to see the political statement that uh, Bellwood is trying to make here. So as Highlander 2 The Quickening opens, we're reminded of the opening from the original movie where Connor's sitting in a, uh, a big auditorium watching a wrestling match. Only this time, we see McLeod watching an opera. He's an old man now, and the very first flashback of this movie takes place. And at this point is where the Highlander franchise lost almost every fan they had. You see, McLeod flashes back at the beckoning, ghost-like call of Ramirez Remember Highlander. to a time some 500 years ago when it all began, on the alien planet of Zeist. It seems our Connor McLeod was a member in a rebellion against the rule of the evil General Katana, played by serial bad guy actor Michael Ironside. And the rebellion is led by... None other than Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, once again played by Sean Connery. Uh-huh. All the rebels are called to one last meeting where Ramirez chooses a man of great destiny from among them. Yep, McLeod. He's chosen to carry out an important mission against Katana. But before they can get their parking tickets validated, General Katana and his horde of angry soldiers come busting in and capture Ramirez and McLeod, and they kill the rest of the rebels. So the two are put on trial, uh, which is a trial led by the priests of Zeist, who sentence the two of them to be exiled and reborn, yes, reborn as babies, 
on Earth as immortals in pursuit of the prize. The prize in this rendering is the choice to either grow old and die on Earth or return to Zeist, which from what we can see in the movie is a planet that looks a heck of a lot like Phoenix in the summer. Really hot and really ugly. Now, McLeod looks to Ramirez and asks him if they'll be together in this, in this new life, and Ramirez tells him, not at first, but we're bound in a way that not even death can separate. Sounds kind of strange to me. And if he ever needs him, he need only call. Here's some foreshadowing going on here. And, you know, of course, Katana is not happy with the lenient sentence, but it's carried out anyway, which leads up to the events in the first movie. Back in the year 2024, Old Man Connor is approached by Louise Marcus, played by Virginia Madsen, who has discovered that the ozone has in fact healed itself, and she wants McLeod to help her take the shield down. Because, of course, she went to the Dome Company first, and they, of course, are too greedy to take it down. They like the money. McLeod is now a tired old man who wants nothing more than to just die, because he's getting very, very old now and dying of natural causes. Cue weird flying alien dudes. Before Connor and Louise can finish their conversation, McLeod is attacked by two of Katana's now immortal henchmen, who finally catch up with him after like 550 years. Great work, guys. So McLeod runs away from Ren and Stimpy and he shouts out, Ramirez, my old friend Ramirez! Okay, whatever. Anyway, a serious fight ensues, and McLeod takes their heads off, and something blows up. Out of the flames and smoke, McLeod walks out, as a young man, flowing hair and all. His immortality and youth once again are restored, and the game starts all over again. Now, while McLeod and Louise begin planning the, uh, for the demise of the Dome, across the ocean in Scotland, Ramirez is revived by the magic of McLeod's summons. At the same time, Katana arrives on Flight 815 from Zeist to personally hunt McLeod down and end his life, which was about to end naturally when his two very competent henchmen gave him his immortality back. Good plan, guys. So, as Katana is causing all kinds of havoc in New York, Ramirez finds his way to McLeod, and together they help Louise take out the dome. But, yep, another but, Katana has anticipated this and attempts to stop them. But because this is a Highlander movie and not a Katana movie, McLeod succeeds in taking out the dome, taking Katana's head, and getting the girl. Unfortunately, and this was a tearjerker moment, Ramirez is killed. Again. At least for the time being. In the end, McLeod chooses to live his life out again on Earth with the girl again. The end. Thank goodness. Of course, there were a lot of things filling in the gaps here, but like I said, I didn't care much for this movie and feel that it actually hurt the franchise more than anything. Now, I'm really a fan of the Highlander franchise, even though it doesn't sound like it. But don't get me wrong, this movie was not made very well at all. So if you're really that interested in this film, give it a view. It's only like 91 minutes long, or if you see the director's cut, it's 109 minutes long, so you won't really lose much of your life watching it. Highlander 2 The Quickening was released on November 1st, 1991, and actually made $15 plus million at the box office in the U.S., which was much more than the original movie made. 
This was most likely due to the cult following the original movie picked up and those of us like me who were excited to see yet another installment. However, this movie was met with extremely harsh criticism by both critics and audiences. In fact, the movie maintains a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which means that all the reviews that were submitted were negative. Now, the common complaint about this movie is that the actors and the story itself just didn't seem like they were motivated. They lacked that spark that they had during the original film. And like me, they all hated the new origins of the Immortals. Really? Aliens? For me, at least, one of the attractive things about the entire Highlander franchise has been that we really have no clue or who or what they are. Even they don't know for sure. That we've been side by side with immortals throughout history is a cool notion. And although I loved the character of Ramirez, to resurrect him like this in this fashion was an insult to how he died in the first place. In the original movie, he died trying to protect McLeod and Heather from the Kurgan. That was heroic. To say that he was only waiting for McLeod to call him to resurrect him was kind of stupid, in my opinion, of course. Because of all the negative feedback on the film, in 1995, director Mulcahy put together a director's cut known as Highlander 2 The Renegade Version. Now, in this new version of the film, Mulcahy reconstructed the movie from, exi from existing material, adding certain scenes back in and removing others. In fact, all references to the Immortals being aliens and the planet Zeist itself were removed from the film. Instead, they indicate that the Immortals are from an unspecified time, long time ago. Kind of sounds like Star Wars. Then in 2004, a special edition DVD was released by William Panzer, which was nearly identical to Mulcahy's version, but with a few additions like new CGI effects. Although still not one of my favorite movies, the new versions made this movie just a little more tolerable. Hi, my name is Al. My wife Joyce and I are serious Disneyland fans. In fact, we love the place so much, we started a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth. In our show, Tales from the Mouse House, we'll discuss some news from the Disneyland Resort, reveal some amazing little-known gems we like to call hidden treasures, and we'll also review some of the rides and attractions that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And we'll review some places to satisfy your hunger attacks, as well as tips that we've picked up over the years to help you get the most out of your Disneyland vacation. So when you're done getting your geeky goodness fixed from Rico, check out Tales from the Mouse House in iTunes. Live long and prosper. Sorry, had to do it. I'm a big Trex and Sci-Fi fan. From the dawn of time we came, moving silently among you. Immortals. Throughout the ages, he has traveled through time. Fulfilling the prophecy that there can be only one. But now, the ultimate evil has found him. His name is Kane. Highland is out there somewhere, and he owes me 400 years. One is a master of the sword. I know who you are. You're Connor McLeod, born into the clan McLeod. The other, a master of illusion. Some say he's the devil himself. Another time are about to collide in this one. Now, the final chapter of the epic war between good and evil concludes. There can be only one. 
final dimension. <laughs> right. Final chapter. Again, there they go, thinking ahead. Okay, so Highlander 2 was, well, let's just say far less than advertised. In fact, it was so bad that not only fans wanted to forget it, so did many of the cast and crew of the production. By the time the third installment of the Highlander franchise was released in 1994, the TV series starring Adrian Paul had been on the air for about two years, and instead of using the events in the second movie to draw a reference from for Highlander 3, they wrote in several references to the TV series to link the third movie to the Highlander universe. Christopher Lambert made the statement that he considered this movie, Highlander 3 The Final Dimension, to be the real sequel to the original Highlander, since Highlander 2 was such a radical departure from what the first movie really was. Now, that's not to say that this third movie is without its issues. There are still quite a few continuity issues. Uh, they use the TV series as a reference in this film, yet they ignored the fact that in the TV universe, there are still immortals running around playing the game. The TV series in this film runs side-by-side side on the virtual timeline, so it would be safe to assume that what happens in the movie affects the TV series, right? But, as I'll cover in a minute, there's just a few things that happen in this movie that put a pretty serious crimp on the continuity of the TV series. So, the plot to Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, takes us from the 16th century all the way to modern day. Well, modern day 1994. Sometime after McCloud's wife Heather dies and he sets out to explore the world, he winds up in Japan and comes across an ancient immortal by the name of Nakano. Nakano lives in a cave in Mount Neri, and over the untold centuries he's been around, he's picked up some very interesting abilities, like the art of illusion. He can look like anyone he wants to, and he can make it seem as if he's in quite a few places at the same time. It's a pretty cool party trick. So, just like in the original, McCloud is now a student of a master immortal. And just like in the original, the antagonist is one seriously evil immortal, bent on worldwide domination. This time, his name is Kane, kind of a Genghis Khan type, played by Mario Van Peebles. Kane, of course, has heard of Nakano's power of illusion and wants it for himself, of course. And if you remember, the quickest way to an immortal's power is through his head, or by taking his head. So as McCloud is being trained by Nakano, Kane and a couple of his henchmen are making their way to Mount Neri, torching and killing people along the way. Once McCloud has learned just about all he can from Nakano, Nakano tempts him by offering up his head. He tells McCloud that, should he take his head, his ability to alter illusion and his many years of life force power will be his. But McCloud is the good guy, and despite Nakano's argument that, should an evil immortal take his head, hint, hint, then the balance would swing in favor of darkness. And of course, McCloud declines. Q. Kane and Company. It's at this point that Kane walks into the cave and fights with Nakano. Although McCloud attempts to stop him, Kane's henchmen prevent him from interfering. And of course, Kane takes Nakano's head, and now he has the same ability that Penn and Teller possess. But wait! The quickening was so violent that the cave begins to collapse, trapping Kane and company inside while McCloud escapes. Now, of course, this event prevents Kane for, from participating in the gathering during the first movie, so I guess McCloud never really won, right? So that means that the second movie, The Quickening, never really happened. 
kind of like the dream ending in the Newhart show. But I think that's what the writers and the producers were trying to convey to us. Now, flash forward to the 18th century, around 1788-1789. Now, MacLeod is in France, and he meets an English woman by the name of Sarah Barrington. They fall in love, of course, and have a grand time until the French Revolution begins. MacLeod is captured and sentenced to death in France by <clears throat> guillotine. As he's sitting in a prison waiting for his sentence to be carried out, an old immortal friend of his by the name of Pierre Boucher, of course, Boucher, uh, visits him and tells him that he's pretty tired of this immortal life. He wants to just end it all, and he knocks Connor out and takes his place on the gallows. Now, MacLeod is reported as dead, and Sarah is left a grieving, would-have-been-but-never-will-be widow. After MacLeod escapes prison and makes his way back to Sarah, he finds out that she's moved on with life, married another man, has had a child with him, something Connor knows he can't offer. Sniff, sniff, break out the tissue. Now flash forward again, but this time to modern day 1994. We find out in that in 1987, just a few years after this final scene in the original movie, McLeod and Brenda Wyatt were in a pretty serious car accident that killed Brenda, but left McLeod unscathed. It's at this point, I think, I would have begun questioning the whole prize thing. I mean, the woman I love was killed in a horrific car accident, but I wasn't hurt. Hmm. So now McLeod is living in Marrakesh with his adopted son, John. Meanwhile, all the way over in Japan, a team of archaeologists are excavating a site on Mount Neri, looking for the legendary cave of the sorcerer Nakanu. One of these diggers is Alexandra Johnson, who looks awfully familiar. As Alexandra is sifting through the artifacts from the dig, she comes across a small swatch of material that looks like a tartan, you know, kilt. She comes to find out that this particular tartan belonged to the clan MacLeod, but it was a tad bit different. Now, way back when, when Connor was accused of being a witch, his uncle Angus altered the tartan just a little bit to signify that it was for Connor and gave it to him to wear as he was being voted off the island. So in good Hollywood fashion, Alexandra discovers this and begins to research this bizarre artifact further. Her hunt brings her back to the States and to Nash Antiques, where Connor has returned. They meet face-to-face, and Connor is intrigued because Alexandra looks so much like Sarah Barrington, the Englishwoman he fell in love with a couple hundred years ago. And apparently she was the only woman he fell in love with over the couple hundred years that passed because he recognized her immediately. But then they really only have 90 minutes, so I guess they kind of had to rush things. You know, the speed dating stuff. Now, they have a few flirtations, but of course, this is Highlander. It's too early in the film for McCloud to be happy. During all this romantic stuff, Kane has escaped the cave because of the recent excavation. He makes his way to New York by using Nakano's powers of, you know, whatever, where he challenges McCloud to battle. The problem is they're on holy ground which we find out is a big no-no in the immortal universe. Holy Ground is supposed to be safe from the game, but Kane pays no mind to that golden rule and starts chopping away at McCloud. In the fight, the blade on McCloud's katana is shattered, and Kane runs away. <laughs> what a coward. At this point, Connor decides to head back to Scotland, to the shores of Loch Shiel, and forge a new sword, but he can't seem to get the recipe just right. Luckily, his new girlfriend is an archaeologist, who happens to have found a bar of highly refined Japanese steel she just found laying around in Nakano's cave. 
So McCloud forges a better sword with his magical steel. He confronts Kane once more, and this time, surprise, surprise, he defeats him and wins the prize. Again. Then heads off to Scotland, no pun intended, with Alex and his adopted son John to live out the rest of his now mortal life. Again. The end. Again. I am Conor McCloud of the Clan McCloud. I was born in 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shiel. Now I am immortal. Now, I, I know that at the beginning of this podcast, I, uh, I think I made mention that I am a serious Highlander fan, but through all of these reviews, I, it probably doesn't show, but trust me, I am a Highlander fan. So what really gets me about this film is the promise that we would be able to finally forget Highlander 2, but then they kind of disregard the entire premise of the TV series, even though they brought in some elements to reference. By setting this movie in the same time as the TV series, they had to maintain certain elements to make them both successful, but they failed to do that. By having Connor defeat Kane and win the prize, they kind of indicate to us that Duncan and all of his immortal friends are now dead. Because in order to win the prize, Connor and Kane had to be the, the last two alive. This couldn't be the case if Duncan and company were still alive battling evil, right? But they did present us with the prize winner twice before, and it wasn't real. So that leads me to believe that there must be a lot of false prizes being won out there. Now, as I mentioned early on, the success of the Highlander franchise is mainly in the home video market. Highlander 3 made a little over $12 million in the box office in the United States, and worldwide made a little over $36 million, but it cost nearly $34 million to make. Although fans were a little more receptive of this installment than the last, reviews were still quite a bit, for the most part, negative. In fact, Christopher Null of FilmCritic.com said, and I quote, the third in a line of increasingly perplexing Highlander movies, Highlander The Final Dimension steals wholesale the plot from the original, throwing in some fresh faces. Ultra fans will rejoice in the face of this third installment, and it's nowhere near as bad as Highlander 2, but most of you can give it a pass. He gave the movie two out of five stars. To me, this third Highlander movie gave me some hope. I could see that the creators were at least trying to get the franchise back on track, but then by trying to end the film with another prize winning, I felt they kind of screwed it all back up. I think that maybe they weren't totally sure of how long or how well the TV series would last, so they decided to wrap up the universe. But by doing that, they actually caused more harm than good. They accomplished one of two things with this approach. They blocked themselves from future stories by putting an ending like this in, or they continue on with the storyline and tell everyone that the endings aren't really endings. So pay no attention to the multi-million dollar special effects quickening prize winning scene at the end. Bad movie making in my opinion, but although highly creative, the powers that be in this franchise didn't always think ahead or plan for the future. Highlander 3 starred Christopher Lambert reprising his role as the immortal McCloud, Mako as Nakanu, Mario Van Peebles as Kane, and Deborah Kara Unger as Alexandra Johnson and Sarah Barrington. This time, directed by Andrew Morahan, best known for directing episodes of the original VTV series and quite a few music videos for Guns N' Roses, Tears for Fears, and Van Halen. For some odd reason, Russell Mulcahy did not return to the helm for this installment, perhaps because he actually wanted his career to continue. Who knows? Perhaps the producers felt it would be just as good to hire a director just like Mulcahy, right? 
Maybe not. Remember what I said about the second Highlander movie? About them trying to recreate lightning? Well, it didn't work then, and it didn't work for this. Maybe part of the problem with this installment, much like the second, is that Gregory Wyden didn't write the screenplay. The only credit he receives in the second and third movies is Characters Created By. This screenplay was written by Paul O., Renee Manzor, and Brad Merrim, who up to this point only had a few screenplays under their collective belts. Again, I glossed over this movie, and there are a lot of in-between things to see when you uh, actually watch the movie, and I do recommend that you watch it at least once. For centuries, we've been told there can be only one. It's what drives other immortals to kill us. But I know. You do. But now... In this world, in this time, I don't care about the game. I don't care about the room. A supernatural enemy has grown too strong for any immortal to face alone. He surrounded himself by immortals loyal on your There has never been a more powerful immortal. exception of the original Highlander movie, I've pretty much been bashing the movies because, well, they're bad. Now, it's easy for me to sit here many years after the fact and say how bad these movies were and what may have gone wrong with them. The ugly truth is movie making is just a business. All too often, movie makers will take an idea that worked and they'll just bleed them dry just to try to profit off of it. Take the Rocky and Rambo franchises, for example. Off topic here, but I'm a huge Rocky and Rambo fan as well. I love the first Rocky movie and the last one. Same with Rambo. Every installment of the franchises between the first and last movies can be burned as far as I'm concerned. The same could be said about the Highlander movies, but that would be wrong. Although there was one more movie put out in the Highlander franchise, which was Highlander the Source, and I'll cover that in a moment, Endgame was really the last movie installment. Endgame was okay, but really nothing more than a glorified episode of the TV series. Now, before I get into the plot, let me talk about a few of the issues that I had with this film. Now, remember earlier when I mentioned that Connor was technically 18 years old when he gained his immortality? Well, during the first movie, if you use your imagination and squint really, really hard, you can probably see that. And that was in 1986. Endgame came out in 2000, 14 years later. And those 14 years were not kind to Christopher Lambert. No offense, Christopher. So, as I'm watching Endgame, and honestly, I did kind of like it, I'm looking at Connor thinking, wow, old. 
He really looks bad. And they don't even try to disguise that fact. Okay, so in the plot, we get the picture that Connor is tired of his long life and relieving others of their heads. He's seen a lot of close friends die. He's worn out. I get that. But come on, he looks really old and really, really bad. Another issue for me is that, yet again, the makers of this movie have completely ignored the last movie. McLeod took Kane's head and we're told that he won the prize. He lives his mortal life out with Alexandra and his adopted son, John. Now, no mention of that at all in Endgame. So, what the heck is the deal here? I almost got upset by this because it's like they're telling me that, yet again, the events prior never happened and we're all just wasting our time watching these movies. It's insulting, really. That being said, on with the plot. In the year 1555, some... 19 years after Connor is banished for being a witch, he returns to Glenfinnan to save his mother from his former friend Jacob Kell, who's now the village priest in training. Seems that while at his blacksmithing job, some unspecified time after Ramirez loses his head for the first time, someone reports to Connor that his mother is being tried as a witch because, well, he was her son and they all thought he was a witch. Now, she must have had one heck of a lawyer if it's taken like 19 years for her trial to get to the sentencing phase. Anyway, Connor, despite the protests of his wife Heather, rushes to Glenfinnan to find his mother laying in her bed mumbling to herself. He's pretty upset by this, and he decides he's going to take her away to live with him in the guest house of his place. But before they can leave her house, knock, knock, knock. In comes Jacob Kell and his adopted father, the priest. They tell Connor he's a witch and his mother's one too. And they've decided the best thing for everybody to do is to burn her. Yikes. They knock Connor out, and that seems to happen a lot in these movies now, and they drag him off to jail. Meanwhile, they've strapped Mother McCloud to a huge pile of wood, which looks like it could be used in the Burning Man Festival, and prepare her to be burned for her crimes. Connor looks out of his uh, jail cell in horror, and it just so happens that his jail cell looks right at the pile of wood, and he attacks the guard and kills him. Then he rushes out to rescue his mother. However, it's a bit too late. The fire has been lit, and she's a-burning. But he manages to get her down, burnt, and begins to weep as she passes. Now, from behind, Rainey, the village priest and Jacob Kell's adopted father, puts his hand on Connor's shoulder. Startled, Connor spins around and thrusts his sword into him, killing him. Hearing his uh, adopted father scream out in pain, Jacob whirls around in time to see his father falling. And of course, Jacob is quite angry about this. I guess he already forgot that he just killed Connor's mother. Hmm. So, Kel attempts to stop Connor and gets the sword in his gut too. As Connor scurries back to the lighthouse, we see Jacob Kel startle awake. Surprise! He's now immortal, just like his old buddy Connor. And you've guessed it, Kel vows revenge on the Highlander. Interesting tidbit in this scene, uh, and this takes a really quick hand on the remote control to see this, but in this sequence, there's a scene where uh, Christopher Lambert is rushing to save his mother from the fire. Just as he gets to the woodpile, a pouch that was hung around his mother's neck, packed with like gunpowder or something, uh, explodes and knocks him over. If you pause the DVD just as he's falling, then go frame by frame, you could see a huge funny goof up here. Now, I'm Scottish, and I do wear a kilt from time to time, so I know the dangers of falling in a kilt. 
You see, certain laws of physics come to play. Something about an object in motion? Well, as Connor is falling, his kilt is still in motion and lifts up just a bit. When he hits the ground, the kilt keeps moving a bit. And we see, ta-da, polka-dotted boxer shorts. I didn't know the Scottish Highlanders wore those in the 16th century. You'd have thought someone would have caught that in post-editing. Okay, back to the story. Now, over the next 400 years, Jacob Kell has amassed a great deal of power by killing immortals left and right. Kell completely ignores all the rules of the game. You know, no killing on holy ground. Once an immortal is engaged in battle with another immortal, no other immortals can interfere. Last one to the party buys all the beer. Oops, sorry, that's from a different game. Kell has put together a group of disciples, all immortals, and they've been hunting other immortals down and letting Kell kill them to gain their powers. By this time, Kell has over 600 quickenings under his belt, and he's become extremely powerful. Then he puts his plan into its final phase. Make Connor suffer. Now, ten years before the events of this film, Kell has tracked down Connor and he kills his adopted daughter, Rachel. Connor is now quite depressed and decides to take himself out of the game. Now, the only way to do this, besides losing your head, is to enter a place called the Sanctuary, a secret place tucked away by a renegade group of Watchers. Now, if you're not aware, Watchers are a secret organization of mortals who have been observing immortals since about the time the immortals began the game. They never interfere, and they just document what they observe for history. This renegade group has decided that no immortal should win the prize, so they've created this sanctuary where they take in immortals who seek refuge from the game. As they're brought in, they're hooked up to a machine that feeds them and keeps them sedated, and it keeps them alive throughout all time. So, Connor lives the next ten years in a coma, safe from the game and safe from the horrors of his mortal life. Ah, but Kel has of course found the sanctuary. And now, ten years later, he and his disciples launch an attack and kills everyone, immortal and watcher alike. Or, so we're led to believe. Now we see for the first time Duncan MacLeod on the big screen. He's been living in London now for a while, or at least since the TV series ended two years prior. He's just chilling out, doing some Tai Chi, when all of a sudden he's overwhelmed with an intense feeling. Almost as if millions of voices cried out in pain. Then we're silenced. Sorry, wrong movie. Uh, this, of course, concerns Duncan because he just knows Connor's in trouble. In fact, he hasn't seen Connor for, hmm, about 10 years. And the last time he did see Connor, Connor was making all kinds of crazy noise, all about how his life is over, yada, yada, yada. So Duncan seeks out his old friend Mythos, a 5,000-year-old immortal friend who tells him of the sanctuary. Duncan then leaves for New York, where he finds Nash Antiques a mess. You see, Kel's disciples have been here looking for him, too, and completely torch the place. Now, at this point, Duncan senses another immortal, and lo and behold, it's Kate, his wife, from 200 years ago, who was an immortal when he got married. But Duncan knew she was, you see, he could sense it. So he decided to help her along. Now, immortals are born with their immortality, sort of. They have the ability, but it just doesn't work until they've been killed for the first time. And not just an ordinary death. It has to be a violent, sudden death. You know, like a sword through the gut by a giant named the Kurgan. And Duncan, as a gift on their wedding night, plunges a dagger through Kate's heart. 
since this is a tragic moment, get it tragic? When she awakens immortal, she can't forgive him. Poor Duncan. Seems that domestic bliss eludes all MacLeods. Okay, back on story. Duncan MacLeod fights with Kel's disciples, and since they don't play by the rules, they all gang up on him. He's pushed out a window and lands on a conveniently placed construction pole, impaling him. He's rescued by the, those uh, renegade watchers in an attempt to start a new sanctuary, but he's rescued by Joe Dawson from them. It gets really confusing. Now, uh, Joe Dawson is Duncan's watcher from the series. Uh, once freed, the real fun begins. Duncan is told that Connor was killed in Kel's attack on the original sanctuary, and of course Duncan wants to see the grave. So Joe, Dawson, and Mythos take him to the cemetery where all beheaded immortals are stashed. And after a few moments, he gets that tingly sensation again, and who's standing behind him? Connor! He's alive! I'm so surprised! Connor proceeds to tell Duncan about Jacob Kell and that Kell actually let him escape just so he can torture him for a few hundred more years. Duncan is all for kicking some immortal bad guy's butt, but Connor tells him, nope, this guy's way too tough. Cue Kell and Kate. Of course, Kell's only reason for this meeting is to tell Connor that he's going to kill Duncan and everyone else he's close to. <laughs> nice guy. Really nice guy. Party guest guy. You know, a few more minutes go by, they posture some more, Kel tells him how bad he is, and he's going to do this and that. And then later on, we see Duncan, who confronts Kate, and he asks her, what's with all the attitude? Huh? Kate tells Duncan why she's mad at him, and that's because he took away the ability to grow old from her, and the chance to have kids. Now, wait just a minute here. First of all, you're immortal. Nice gift, if you ask me, especially during a time like 200 years ago when the average person died horribly from all kinds of nasty stuff. Second, you're immortal. You couldn't have had kids even if you hadn't been killed. Get over it. I mean, a 200-year-old grudge? Phew. Well, well, that's why she's with Kel, and he can certainly understand holding a grudge. Anyway, in the final scenes of the movie, Kel holds a Last Supper type of dinner party with all of his disciples. His ultimate plan is to, well, get them all drunk and take their heads. He wants their quickenings to add to his strength, so when he finally meets the McClouds, he's completely unstoppable. And in an impressive display of special effects, he takes their heads, makes their life force his own, and then he has a nice piece of cherry cheesecake for dessert but he spared one life. Hmm, who could that be? Now, this is the scene that really tore me up. We're back at Duncan's place, and he gets that hair-raising, tingling feeling that tells him another mortal is near. He grabs his trusty katana and heads up to the roof of the building and sees, yep, Connor. They chat, catch up on old times, and Connor tells Duncan that Kel is just too strong to beat. Neither one of them has the strength to do it alone. So, since both McClouds are honorably good men, they know that they can't tag-team Kel. So, Connor tells Duncan that there's really only one solution. Duncan has to take Connor's power. It has to be Duncan because he's younger and stronger. Plus, Connor's lived a full life. And let's face it, Christopher Lambert's looking pretty old, remember? So they clash swords for a few moments, then Connor traps Duncan in a move that can only end one way. 
with Connor's head coming off. In a truly emotional moment, and I, I mean that seriously, Duncan and Connor say goodbye to each other, and Duncan takes Connor's head and with it all of his many years of power. Honestly, this was really an emotional moment for me. Uh, I've been following the Highlanders since the beginning, and I really, really liked the character of Connor McLeod. Although the story of Connor needed closure, it was kind of sad for me to see him die. And at the hand of a clansman, someone he taught and mentored. It was really fitting, though, that Duncan be the one that took it. Ideally, we think of Connor McLeod as an immortal that's really, you know, kick butt. No one can beat him. So it was nice, if that's the proper, to, proper word to use in this context, that Duncan McLeod was the one to take Connor McLeod's life force. Now, Duncan, or Dun Connor, is ready. He hunts down Kel, and of course, at first, Kel overpowers Duncan and inflicts a lot of damage. But just as Kel raises his sword for the final blow, Connor takes control of Duncan, just for a moment, and Kel actually sees the face of Connor in Duncan, which distracts him long enough for Duncan to give him this super close shave, taking his head and his incredible power with it. The end. Sort of. Duncan takes Connor's body back to Scotland and buries him next to his beloved wife, Heather. Now, the end. I liked the ending to this movie much better than the second and third movies because they didn't give us that prize-winning moment at the end, pun intended. They ended it much like an episode of the TV show would have ended, you know, with the quickening and the bad guy losing. I also liked the wrap-up of the Connor storyline for a couple of reasons. I think that it was time that the torch be passed to another. Unfortunately, they didn't succeed in doing that properly, since for the most part, Endgame wasn't done very well, even though it was better than the previous two movies. I also did like the way that they wrapped up the, the Connor storyline. It was very fitting and emotional to have Duncan McLeod be the one to take Connor's life. They were from the same village, only 50 years or so apart. Duncan grew up hearing the legend of Connor McLeod, and unlike uh, many of his clansmen, Duncan wasn't fearful of those stories. He was intrigued by them. So when Duncan was killed in a battle, and Connor found him and mentored him, Duncan and Con uh, Connor formed a, a brother-like bond. What I didn't like about this movie was the soap opera style that they wrote it. The movie had more than its share of drama, the soul-searching meaning-of-life type stuff that really only deserves a few fleeting moments in a movie like this. Now, I'm not saying that I don't like cerebral movies, because I do. Just ask my wife, Joyce, you know, the other host of Tales from the Mouse House. <laughs> Sorry. But in these types of movies, we don't want to have to think hard about things. We want sword fights and we want quickenings. Another issue with this movie is that they cut this up and added all kinds of fast music to it, and it just didn't feel right. I think that they were trying to recreate Mulcahy's style of fast cuts and racy music, but it really comes off as a second-rate attempt. And, and this is kind of a funny issue. Through the first three movies, Christopher Lambert makes absolutely no attempt to speak with the Scottish brogue. Now, for some very, very odd reason, he decides to give it a try for Endgame, and it actually made me long for the other movies. It hurt my ears. It actually hurt my ears to hear him try that accent. Now, in his defense, the Scottish brogue is not an easy accent to speak with, but his attempt actually hurt my ears. Nothing worse than a Frenchman trying on a Scottish accent. Now, even though I don't think that Highlander Endgame was a great movie, it was certainly better than the previous two, and if I had to make a choice... I would take the original Highlander movie and follow it up with Endgame, and then that would be it. 
Now, this film was by far not a financial success for Dimension Films. In fact, of the $25 million it cost to make Endgame, they only recoup just under $16 million in box office revenue worldwide. Of course, as with the other three installments of the Highlander franchise, they made a bit more in the home video market, but nowhere near enough to cover the cost of the film. There was at least some positive reviews on this movie. Actor Bruce Payne, who played uh, the, the evil Kel, received a lot of great feedback on his portrayal of this installment's evil immortal. Typically, Highlander villains are played way, way over the top. And if done right, like Clancy Brown did, that's okay. But when it's done poorly, like Michael Ironside and Mario Van Peebles, it tends to drag the movie into a pit. Bruce Payne did a terrific job of keeping Kel a believable character, more refined than most of the villains. He speaks clearly, like you'd imagine an evil, although a bit twisted, genius would. Fun note, if you pay close attention to the names of the villains in all of the Highlander movies up to this point, their names all start with K. Kurgan, Katana, Kane, Kel. Kind of like Christopher Paulini's obsession with the letter E. You know, he's the author of the popular Aragon series of books. Aragon, Eldest, Brissinger. Okay, never mind. Brissinger doesn't start with an E. And no, Paulini didn't pay me to plug his book. The plan was to bring Duncan into a series of movies, kind of taking up the fight that Connor left off. But unfortunately, with the poor reviews and poor box office numbers, then the untimely death of producer William Panzer, the Highlander franchise was shelved until someone with a more, how shall I put this, idiotic vision took up the story. This is all too evident in the movie Highlander, The Source. The world has fallen into chaos and decay. There is nothing there but death. Where there is no law or justice. There are maniacs on that island. They must have seized the port. Only death and destruction. I found a monastery where the monks studied an ancient text that spoke of the source. And then he appeared. He has risen. The Guardian is awake. A time that even immortals fear. This is a trap. Now, Duncan McLeod must join forces with the other immortals. I hear your request for the source. Brave man died to get us this far. To find the holy grail of peace. The Elder will see you. We seek the source. Are you willing to pay the price? And defeat a powerful enemy. <laughs> so you have encountered the god. A force that cannot be defeated before it's too late. Highlander, the source, is coming. Look for it on DVD. So, Highlander the Source. After watching the movie, this begs the question, the source of what? I do have a few ideas, but since someday I'd like to sit in Rico's guest host seat again, I won't voice them here. 
released directly to television via the Sci-Fi Channel and to DVD via the uncut version, the only installment of the Highlander franchise that was not released in theaters was The Source, and it was, well, up there with the quickening. In fact, I'd have to honestly say that it was by far even worse than The Quickening. I was more confused at the end of The Source than I've ever been while watching a Highlander movie, or a Highlander TV series. It's even tough to know where to begin on this movie. There's really only two redeeming qualities about The Source. The first is an interesting remake of the legendary uh, Queen song, Princes of the Universe. It's been updated and made into a more heavy rock version, but it's really pretty good. The second is that it's only about 90 minutes long. However, the downside is that uh, that's 90 minutes you'll never see again. Now, it was originally planned as the first installment of a trilogy, uh, and the source attempts to show us the source of all the immortals, well, immortality, hence the title, Highlander the Source. And as far as I'm concerned, right at the beginning is where they lose us all. In an attempt to squeeze just a few more dollars out of an unfortunately failing franchise, Peter Davis, the producer, brings loyal fans like myself to a point where we're just fed up. Anytime you try to explain mystical origins of an incredible mystery, you run the risk of really causing more trouble than anything else. The Highlander franchise tried this once before. Can you say Highlander the Quickening? In that movie, they tried to tell us that the Immortals actually came from another planet. In The Source, well, I'm still kind of confused as what they were trying to tell us. But I'll give you my take on the uh, movie. Now, the movie opens up in what looks to be a post-apocalyptic world. Crime and general mayhem run rampant. Hmm, sounds like another Highlander movie. And everyone seems to be living in refugee centers. McLeod has become a bit of a Batman type, sitting on rooftops, beating up bad guys and such. See, he's kind of bummed out now because his wife left him a while ago. No, not Kate from the Endgame. She's passed on for some reason. No, this is Anna, his mortal wife. She dumped him because, well, she wants to have a kid. Major plot foreshadow here. So, Anna is now having some sort of vision of a planetary alignment that's supposed to be pretty important, so she's kind of an oracle of sorts now. Now, at this point, we learn that a a group of immortals have been searching for the mythological source, the holy grail of peace and salvation for all immortals. Now, one of these immortals comes across some information that indicates that an unusual alignment of planets supposedly point to where the source is going to be. This is when we meet the evil bad guy for this movie, known as the Guardian. He's, of course, twisted and very large, very pale, very bald, and he possesses incredible speed and power. And he wears these finger attachments that have some kind of pointed ends on them. And he doesn't do it just for show, either. He rips heads off with them. Yummy. Well, our uh, source-seeking immortal runs into the Guardian. And, of course, the Guardian kills him. And after the quickening, in fact, one of only two quickenings in this entire movie, and neither one of them belonged to McCloud, you know, the star of the flick... Anyway, McLeod runs into the Guardian at this point. They start to fight, with the Guardian running around like Speedy Gonzales, and of course, McLeod's getting his butt kicked. Cue Joe Dawson. He speeds in on a white horse, okay, a white pickup truck, and knocks the Guardian out and rescues McLeod, even though McLeod doesn't want to be. 
And of course, Anna is still having these visions, only this time she hears a voice tell her to find the source, 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 which she sets out to do. And so do the group of immortals, who now include a wisecracking astronomer named Reggie, a priest with a pretty strange hairdo, and Mythos. Yep, Mythos, the 5,000-year-old immortal friend of Duncan. They meet up with Joe and Duncan. Joe is actually working with Mythos on this. And they head out to uh, a renegade brotherhood that is in charge of all things Source. Led by the elder, uh, Jabba the Hutt Reject, who we find out used to be an immortal and is way, way older than Mythos. The brotherhood kind of projects the legendary Source. Jabba tells the group, and now Anna's with them because, remember, she was told to seek out the Source... Uh, that he was once like them a long time ago. He and a group of immortals just like them set out to find the answers to who and what they are. But, as in all long road trips, they begin to fight, words were said, and heads came off. You know the story, like me and my family on the way to Disneyland. So, only three remained by the time they found the source, which was protected by a guardian. When they attempted uh, to breach the source, the guardian and Jabba's friend fought. And Jabba's friend won. Jabba tried to walk into the source and boom! Jabba becomes the melted flesh he now is and his friend becomes the new guardian. He also tells them that the closer they get to the source, they will all lose their immortality. Another foreshadowing here, perhaps? After they meet and greet with the Elder, Reggie is confronted by the guardian and, of course, Joe Dawson attempts to interfere with a shotgun. (laughs) Nice. But, of course, before he can blast away at the back of Mr. Bad Attitude, he has to deliver some of these great one-liners. Which, of course, give the Guardian just enough time to turn around and smack Joe. McLeod rushes to the scene, throws his katana into the Guardian, who, of course, pulls it out, snaps it in half, and with the business end, impales Joe Dawson. In a scene that rivals the death of Connor McLeod, okay, that's a lie, Joe tells McLeod he's the one. Blah, 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 Joe dies. So McLeod and company make their way to an island. Nope, not the Oceanic 815 Survivors Island. And this island is inhabited by what else? Cannibals. Right. When they get onto the island, they come across this band of flesh eaters trying to roast some guy. And I don't mean the Comedy Central type of roast. They decide to step in and stop it in one of the most clumsy, poorly choreographed fight scenes I have ever seen, and I've seen a lot of bad karate movies, our band of source seekers, of course, wins. So after the cannibal butt-kicking, they keep moving on and come across a farmhouse for the night. And one of the most annoying scenes of the movie takes place here. Now, Duncan's outside at night, lamenting about Joe, when Anna comes up to him. They chat for a moment or two, and then, out of nowhere, they start, well, you know... I mean, really? You're being chased by cannibals, a pretty crazy pale guy who can move faster than me at an all-you-can-eat pizza buffet, and you're going to do this? Anyway, Mr. Guardian does show up, and he sneaks up on Reggie. They exchange some really stupid one-liners, and the Guardian slices Reggie up like a bloomin' onion from Outback Steakhouse. But he doesn't take his head. Strange, right? So McLeod and company rush Reggie into the truck and speed off, waiting for him to regain consciousness again like, of course, all good immortals do. But it's been hours and nothing. Huh. 
they pull over and realize this guy's really dead. Oops. They're close to the source, so guess who isn't immortal anymore? They soon fall onto a trap set by the cannibals. You didn't think we'd seen the last of them, did you? And they're strung up next to what looks like uh, the Burning Man woodpile. This is when the Guardian walks up to them. He frees Anna and tells her to follow him to the source. What for? No clue. After they leave, the priest pulls a hand free, then pulls out a small dagger that was hidden inside of his cross, and then he runs off. Seems he's decided that there can only be one, and he wants it to be him. Duncan frees himself and Mythos, and they both rush off to intercept the Guardian. As they're making their way, they come across the priest who's being cornered by the cannibals. Now Mythos shows us a side of him that we've never seen before. Let him die, he says. Wow, that's pretty harsh. But of course, Duncan is the Highlander, and he can't allow that to happen, even if he is mortal now. He saves the priest, who thanks him by running away. Again. Mythos tells McLeod that he'll distract the flesh eaters while he goes and gets the source, because, of course, McLeod has proven that he's pure. He's the best of them all. It's his destiny, and he's totally incorruptible. And, of course, he's good, and he's cute and in a kilt and all that good stuff. Okay, I added the last part. So at this point, the priest comes across the guardian who slices him directly in half then takes his head for good measure. Seems like he thought it was a stupid hairdo as well. Then, in a display of amazing special effects for the year 1928, McLeod comes across a scene that looks like something from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, what looks like a crater... And on the other side, steps made out of dirt or something lead to a glowing area. And just beyond that, up in the sky are the planets. And Anna is walking up the stairs. As McLeod tries to get her to leave, all of a sudden he senses another immortal. Wow, his immortality is back. Yay! But it's the Guardian. They duke it out in what, to me, is the corniest, worst display of anything ever. Really, really dumb. And now, of course, McLeod has the same speedy Gonzalez power that the Guardian has. After a few minutes of what seems like hours of fighting, Duncan defeats the Guardian. And, and this is something straight out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon, he defeats him by running in very, very fast circles around the Guardian. So many, in fact, that the Guardian is spinning and spinning and spinning and twisting and twisting and twisting him and corkscrewing himself straight into the ground. Now he's trapped and Duncan takes out his daggers to hold him to his head. But wait, he doesn't kill him. Instead, he delivers some tripe about who he is and how he knows who he is, and the guardian yells out in pain. As his eyes are shooting some sort of energy beams that we can only assume means he's dead. Why? Maybe because Duncan is so pure. Kind of like the whole Harry Potter thing when his mother touched him and gave him pure love, blah, blah, blah. Now, a quick flash of Anna as she's going inside the source. Then we see all the planets line up perfectly as she beckons to Duncan to join her. But, for some reason, she's changed her appearance. All of a sudden, her hair is cornrowed, kind of like Bo Derek. What? What the heck? Made absolutely no sense. It was just completely stupid. Now, this is where the movie gets really dumb. I know, this is where... As Duncan walks into the source, we hear a voiceover by Anna describing the entire movie. She tells us that only one immortal can pass through into the source, and that pretty much all of their lives, immortals are being tested by, I don't know, I guess the source. 
Only the purest of hearts can enter the source. Only one, as in there can be only one. And it seems that Duncan is the purest of hearts. And the prize, or I mean the source, gives him the ability to have a kid. So inside this glowing source energy thingy, he and Anna, well, you know. So I'm just not sure. Wow, right? I don't even know where to begin. First, what it seems that they're telling us is that since 1986, you know, we've heard the now famous line, there can be only one. And that actually means only one to have a kid? Huh? Well, that could have actually worked had they done it right. I mean, having the ultimate prize be the ability to have a child who could be immortal to carry on the game would have been okay. Now, I, I know I've done a good job at, at hiding my real feelings about this movie, but I did have some issues with it. First, this movie moved way too fast. It's almost like they knew that the trilogy would never happen, so they tried to pack all the info into one 89-minute movie. The story never has a chance to build, and the characters never have a chance to get developed. They plop two gratuitous sex scenes that really serve no purpose at all. The acting in this movie rivals any daytime soap opera out there. The lines were written like an episode of Days of Our Lives or something. The special effects were terrible, way too much use of green screening, which really makes the film look hokey. Some elements of the movie tell us that this is in the future. The world is in ruins. So for the place to get into this shape it's in in this movie, I would imagine it should be about 20 years or so at least beyond the events of Endgame. But Joe Dawson looks almost exactly like he does in Endgame. I know, a minor detail, but honestly, in a movie this bad, it's just another log on the fire. The music, always a very important aspect of any movie, just ask Bartok, was way beyond bad. It's as if the producers let his 10-year-old son pick out the playlist. The songs never fit the scenes that they're played in, and for the most part, were always a hard-edged mix of grunge and hard rock. Even in the, you know, scene, they played this type of music. It's just very poorly done. In fact, coupled with the music, the movie plays out like a bad Guns N' Roses music video. Maybe they were trying to capture the fast cuts and racy music style of Russell Mulcahy again. Who knows? Everything about Highlander the Source was just bad. Pretty much across the board, reviews were negative. Even hardcore fans like myself, from both the movies and the TV series, were horrified by this movie. To think that anyone, anyone, could make this was beyond belief. I've seen fan films with almost no budget at all and no professional acting talent put this movie to shame. And this movie had a budget of $13 million. Since this movie went straight to DVD and TV, it's really hard to find any numbers on revenue, but I think it's really safe to say that they lost a ton of money on this. I was and am tremendously disappointed in this movie and everyone involved. I really, really only urge you to see this movie if you're having trouble sleeping or if you need a really good laugh. Highlander, the source. He's coming. One more note on the 
movie aspect of the Highlander franchise, there are rumors, pretty substantiated rumors, that Summit Entertainment will remake the original Highlander movie. In fact, Iron Man writers Art Markham and Matt Holloway have been hired to pen the script, and possibly Justin Lin, who directed the most recent Fast and Furious movie, will take on the task of directing this outing. They haven't chosen who will fill the Connor McCloud role, but names like Gerard Butler and Kevin McKidd, two real-life Scots, are being mentioned as contenders. He is Duncan McLeod, the Highlander. Born in 1592 in the Highlands of Scotland, and he is still alive. He is immortal. For 400 years, he's been a warrior. A lover. Facing other immortals in combat to the death. The winner takes his enemy's head. And with it, his power. I am a watcher. Part of a secret society of men and women who observe and record, but never interfere. We know the truth about immortals. In the end, there can be only one. May it be Duncan McLeod, the Highlander. Now, since the TV series lasted for six seasons, I'm not going to cover this particular aspect of the franchise in depth, but I just want to give you some of the highlights. The TV series is really, really just too complicated to cover in a, a show that attempts to cover most of the Highlander franchise, but I really wanted to touch on the biggest points of the Highlander universe. Maybe sometime I can fill in again and concentrate on one particular aspect of the franchise, like the series. The Highlander TV series ran in syndication from 1992 through 1998 and was an offshoot of the original Highlander movie with a slight twist. It assumes, of course, that Connor didn't win the prize in the first movie, which really isn't that hard to envision since the producers spent a lot of years telling us that Connor won, didn't win, won, didn't win. Ugh. The series starred British-born Adrian Paul, best known for roles like Kolya, the Russian expatriate ballet dancer on ABC's The Colbys, and as John Kincaid, a mercenary working with a group of humans who fight an alien invasion in the short-lived TV series War of the Worlds, which was based on the 1953 movie. In Highlander the series, Adrian Paul stars as Duncan MacLeod, a distant clansman of the legendary Connor MacLeod, and he, like Connor, is immortal. Although the series showcased the major theme of the movie quite well, you know, sword fighting, heads coming off, that kind of thing, there were really two major themes common to all the episodes in the series. The relationships that Duncan builds and maintains with fellow immortals and mortals alike, and the struggle to fight evil and be honorable through everything. Although near the end of its run, Highlander started to get a bit strange with dark quickenings and such. Highlander the series was quite well done and flowed into the Highlander universe much smoother than every sequel. Now shortly after the wrap of Highlander 2 The Quickening, Christopher Lambert and Highlander producers Peter Davis and Bill Panzer discussed the future of the franchise and all three agreed that they would like to see a weekly TV series come out of this. Lambert had previously worked with a French entertainment conglomerate called Gamut, who was pretty good at bringing television shows to light. 
Lambert connected Davis and Panzer with Gamut president Christian Sherritt. Gamut then purchased the rights to the Highlander TV franchise and began production for syndication in America, with Davis and Panzer as executive producers. Of course, they did approach Christopher Lambert to play the key role, but he declined, which put a bit of a crimp in the development of the story. They wanted to use the character of Connor, but they also felt it would be a bit awkward if someone other than Christopher Lambert played the role. So when Adrian Paul was cast, he actually beat out 400 others for the part. At his request, they changed the protagonist of the series from Connor to Duncan, a Klansman, because movies were still being made with the Connor character, and Adrian Paul felt it might be a bit awkward and confusing if they saw a different character play both the same roles. Although Christopher Lambert had declined to star in the series, he did agree to appear in the pilot episode as Connor to pass on the torch as it were. In the pilot episode, The Gathering, a Kurgan-esque bad guy named Slan, okay, admittedly not a great bad guy name, but at least it didn't start with the letter K, uh, was played by Night Court's Richard Mall, who is stalking Duncan. And of course, Slan is being stalked by none other than Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Of course, in this episode, we get to meet Duncan MacLeod, also of the Clan MacLeod, who has established a pretty peaceful existence with his mortal love, Tessa, played by Alexandra Vandernoot. Yeah, uh, that's what I thought too, Vandernoot. As we come into the series, Duncan has been competing in the game now for a very long time, and he's pretty fed up with all the killing. So he's kind of taken himself out of actively participating, you know, headhunting and all. Well, uh, in a scene at the beginning while Duncan and Tessa are, well, you know, he senses another immortal. When he investigates, all he comes across is a street punk named Richie Ryan, who, it turns out, is actually a pre-immortal. You know, he hasn't had his violent death yet. But wait, Duncan senses yet another immortal, and it's actually his clansman, Connor McLeod. Connor and Duncan meet up, discuss Slan, and Duncan decides he's going to be the one to face him. Of course, it's his show. In a fight scene that is way, way better than any of the sequels, Duncan defeats Slan and takes his head. And at the end of the episode, Connor asks Duncan, what of the boy? And he's referring to Richie. Duncan assures Connor that he'll watch over him and help him learn all that he can before the inevitable happens. And Connor and Duncan once more part ways, fighting for the good of mortals and immortals alike. You see, at this point, Richie Ryan doesn't know that he's immortal. Now, I know I kind of did the speed dating version of The Gathering, but I'd much rather just give you the gist of the episode and suggest that you watch it for yourself. It's really well done, and the character development, even in this first episode, is just terrific. If they had had the writers the series had in any of the sequels, I think this franchise would have fared much better. When the series hit the air, I was so happy because, at least in my eyes, they had redeemed themselves just a little bit after the debacle that was Highlander 2 The Quickening. Throughout the six seasons of the series, the writers and actors did a wonderful job of developing the characters and adding new, believable and likable characters into the mix. Richie Ryan, played by Stan Kearse, was really great as the wisecracking punk kid that Duncan molds into an upstanding citizen. Throughout the time that Richie was still mortal, the relationship between Duncan and he transformed into a great big brother-little brother synergy. Each episode involved what I call three major parts, the main, the secondary, then the quickening. See, each week we had the evil immortal that was either hunting Duncan, a friend of Duncan, or just creating a mess in his town. 
The secondary plot was typically a mid-level story, like Richie Ryan looking for his uh, estranged father, or Tessa struggling with Duncan's immortality. Then, of course, the quickening. Do I really need to explain that part? I mean, after the last hour and a half? Anyway, although this formula had the potential to get very tedious very quickly, it never really did. Each week, we were presented with a pretty good story that grabbed us and just pulled us right in, probably due a great deal in part to the acting of the cast. They had a great passion for their characters that made them very believable, well, as believable as a 400-year-old who beheads people can be. The writers did such a great job of not only keeping with the continuity of the Highlander universe, but also creating so much more than was presented in the first movie. In fact, they created such an elaborate universe that subsequent movies like The Final Dimension borrowed from it to make their outing more believable. Through the very effective use of the flashback that the first movie made work so well, the writers unfolded the story of Duncan MacLeod while putting him in many very famous historical situations, like the Jacobite uprising in Scotland during the 1700s or the First World War. The art of inserting a character like MacLeod into actual historical events lends an air of believability to the storyline. This technique was used in the Wolverine movie released last year. Now, for the most part, critical reaction to Highlander the series has always been favorable, and fans like me of the movie became just completely obsessed with the series. Although at times the direction of the series was a bit uncertain, for the most part it gave viewers something unique and interesting to watch and actually become part of. I think for me, one of the biggest things this series gave to me was a glimpse into what I think a lot of guys and maybe gals often fantasize about, and that's being immortal. Right? Or am I just completely alone on this? (laughs) My wife thinks I am. Anyway, for me... Highlander allowed me to live vicariously through Duncan and have those incredible adventures week after week. Now, this series offered us some of the most interesting cast of guest stars over its six-year run. Everyone from rock stars like Roger Daltrey of The Who, rolling gift of fine young cannibals, and Joan Jett, to Ron Perlman, who played Hellboy, and the actress Tracy Scoggins. In fact, they liked Roger Daltrey so much that he had a reoccurring role as McLeod's immortal friend Hugh Fitzcairn, who he had many, many adventures with in the old days. The series introduced the organization called The Watchers, which was also used in uh, the movie Endgame, and at least mentioned in the movie The Source. And I use movie very liberally. Jim Burns, a great actor that you really never see anymore, played Joe Dawson, McLeod's Watcher. Now, the Watchers were an organization of historians, basically, that observed immortals throughout history, and they kept records of them. Who won, who they loved, etc., They wanted to make certain that the proper history was kept on the immortals to avoid them becoming just another folklore in time. This premise brought a great reoccurring storyline to the series and introduced some great conflicts. In the second series episode, The Watchers, Joe Dawson explains who the Watchers are to McLeod and that since his kind have been around, his kind have been watching. (laughs) A little weird, but of course, there's a lot more to this first meeting, but I'll let you uncover that for yourself. Anyway, it's throughout the next few episodes in this season that McLeod and Dawson strike up a weary friendship that, in the end, as I discussed in the source, becomes a really strong bond. In fact, as Dawson dies in the source, and yep, I'm still pretty peeled about that senseless death, Joe tells McLeod that he is his best friend. 
The Watcher storyline also evolves into some pretty major plot points as well that helps explain the renegade Watcher group that we see in the movie Endgame. Now, music, as I mentioned in my source review, is so incredibly important to any visual presentation from movies to TV. Luckily, in Highlander the series, they married the music very, very well to the show. In a pure stroke of genius, composer Roger Bellin was hired to create the musical world of the Highlander, which he did very, very well. The talented Bellin created music that fit any era the writers placed McLeod into, and he did it with flawless style. With both vocal scores and orchestrated numbers, Bellin uses his talent to make each scene more enjoyable. In fact, here's just a few moments of some of my favorite songs from the series. The final season of Highlander was short, only 12 episodes instead of the usual 22. In a two-episode arc, Highlander the series ended in May 1998 in a bit of a Christmas Carol way, but it was still pretty good. After six seasons, it was really time to end this run before it became another Heroes. Well, before Heroes became another Heroes, but that's another show entirely. If you're interested in watching episodes of the Highlander series, and I highly recommend that you do, you can pick up all six seasons on DVD, or if you want, you can watch them on Hulu. Hello, Al, standing in for Vico on Treks in Sci-Fi. This is Meds from Waffle on Podcast, and uh, I thought I'd send a brief comment in regarding your guest show, all about Highlander. It's a brilliant film, and it's one of those 80s films that I think stand out uh, for 
us types who are quite young in the 80s, uh, uh, it's one of those films that stand out along with Commando and Terminator, you know. Um, I remember coming out of the cinema, um, pretending to sword fight, get a big stick and, and sword fight. Probably uh, the only other film to do that was, was Star Wars. Uh, do, you, do you get that nowadays? Uh, probably not, I don't think. The film has an awesome soundtrack done by Queen, and uh, the song Who Wants to Live Forever is uh, one of them songs that uh, I think fits in the film so well. It's a, it's a really played out song, and it's a moving part of the film. Um, everyone, I, I guess, will be talking about Christopher Lambert uh, as MacLeod, and of course, the great Sean Connery as Ramirez um, but for me it's Clancy Brown who stands out uh, he's a brilliant actor and his portrayal of the Kurgan in the, in this film is just just brilliant you know he's really is a nasty piece of work and has a fantastic sword um, I've seen all the well replicas actually of the swords they weigh something I tell you they, they really are heavy and uh, I looked at the Kurgan sword and I was always fascinated by it clicks together and I was thinking that's not going to stand up to a good sword fight when you when you're you're battling away you know it, it's going to definitely come apart and, and that'd be quite embarrassing um McLeod's sword is very heavy it's very typical Scottish broadsword and uh, Ramirez's sword is actually quite light but they are awesome and uh, I honestly hope when uh, we money is um i have plenty of it someday maybe <laughs> when i retire i'm going to collect those swords and put them on the wall uh it's a fantastic film and um not too keen on the follow-ups to be fair um i hope you don't mention them <laughs> and if you do go back to uh, talking about the original highlander film it is a great film really looking forward to hearing uh, hearing your podcast and uh great for doing it cheers bye Thanks, Meds, for the uh, for the comment. And uh, just uh, as an FYI, I wasn't that young in the '80s, and and I do remember Commando and the uh, the first Terminator movie. And and I agree, uh, Commando was one of those. Uh, how do you put it? Um, one of those not so great movies, but it was one of those movies that you you just couldn't walk away from. I mean, it, it, it had everything that, that you really wanted to see in a movie. It had violence, it had Arnold, and it had a lot of high-powered rifles. I mean, what more could you ask for? And uh, Meds made the, the comment about uh, coming out of the cinema after seeing the Highlander for the first time and picking up sticks and uh, sword fighting with it. I have kind of a, a cute story, if you want to call it cute. Uh, when the uh, Highlander TV series was, was being aired, my daughter was, was quite young, about six years old. And during the opening sequence of each episode, she and I would sword fight with her, uh, her metal batons. And I got to tell you, I still have scars on my knuckles from that. When, you know, a six-year-old, not very good with the sword smacking me across the hand. And, um, you know, you're right that uh, there's really no movies today that elicit that same type of of reaction from people when, you know, when they come out of movies, you don't see the kids picking up sticks and, and pretending to be, uh, you know, the, the characters in the movies that they've just seen. And um, speaking about the soundtrack, um, it was. Uh, the, the soundtrack in the original movie and uh, also in the TV series was just outstanding. Uh, Queen, who composed and uh, performed uh, almost all of the music in the original movie, it, it was just completely phenomenal. Uh, it's 
hard to imagine what that movie would have been like without that soundtrack. Uh, it did elicit uh, many emotions from you as you're watching it, from you know, from the thumping uh, princess of the universe right down to, uh, as Meds mentioned. Um, who wants to live forever? I mean, that that song, as silly as it might sound, was was a great love song for that that movie. And uh, Clancy Brown, as, as I mentioned in my review, Clancy Brown does an amazing job as the evil uh, Kurgan in this movie. He almost steals that show. In fact, I would have to say that uh, Clancy Brown did such a wonderful job that he pretty much does steal that show. Uh, without him in it, I really don't know if it would have been the same product that they ended up with. And, uh, you know, you're right. You're, the swords, they are extremely heavy. And uh, the first time I did see uh, the movie and I saw the Kurgan sword, uh, you know, in three pieces as he's, as he's putting it together, I thought the same thing. There is just absolutely no way the, the heft of that sword is going to stand up with all those pieces in it. But but it does. And, uh, you know, swords, they are heavy. Uh, I, I have a, a replica Scottish uh, broadsword. Uh, I used to compete in the Scottish Highland Games in the athletics. And uh, as the overall prize for one of the competitions... It was uh, a, a Scottish broadsword. This thing stands at almost, I would say, probably about five and a half, almost six feet tall. And it's pretty heavy. probably weighs a good 50 pounds. There's no way that I can store that on my wall. And uh, I, I am sorry about covering the sequels. Uh, I know that um, you were hoping that I wouldn't do that. But uh, I, I didn't want to cover the entire franchise without touching on the, on the, the good and the bad aspects of, of the franchise. It's, it's kind of a great uh, way to, to point out what was good and what was bad. And, and like I said in my reviews, uh, I, I really completely believe that, that the makers of the Highlander universe... They they kind of lost their way for a little while. They were wholly, in my opinion, motivated by making the quick buck. They thought that they had a cash cow there with the Highlander franchise, and they did, but they blew it. They just kind of went right down into the into the bowels of wherever you want to call it. Well, that's all I have for you. Thanks for letting me fill your heads with my thoughts on the Highlander franchise. Like I said earlier, this is just my take on this insane universe, and I flew through a lot of it pretty quickly, but I really just wanted to give you a taste of what the Highlander franchise was, both the good and the bad. Even though, in my eyes, a lot of it was bad, I recommend that you at least watch them once. The whole concept that Gregory Wyden created is really incredible. Feel free to send me comments on the show or on the Highlander universe if you want. You can reach me at talespodcast at cox.net. That's tales, T-A-L-E-S, podcast at cox.net. So happy Father's Day to all of you baby daddies out there. Enrico, thanks again for allowing me to have a go at the captain's chair this week. It's really an honor. And I hope that you and Lynn enjoy your weekend. Enrico, happy Father's Day. And if you all only remember one thing from this show, remember this. There can be only one. Have a great week, everyone.